Hello and welcome to this live chat episode of Bractopia. Today's show features an extended interview with Michael Utvich, an award-winning author of nine books on practical applications of technology, an adjunct professor at four major academic institutions, and the developer of interactive media content programs focusing on new approaches to user engagement, visual expression, and storytelling. In the business world, Michael has worked in high technology, automotive manufacturing, and across a wide range of industries, focusing on strategy, communications, and bringing innovative products to market. He's also an old personal friend of mine, with whom I recently had a chance to catch up. Curious about the Fractopia project, Michael took some time out of his busy schedule to interview me via phone, and was kind enough to send me a recording of our dialogue for use in this podcast. The conversation begins with an introduction to the Fractopia project itself, but quickly turns toward more heady topics as we examine and compare our views on the future of labor, employment, identity, and capitalist realism in the age of advanced automation. Fractopian fiction genre or subgenre. It, it, what I consider a more realistic version of a cyberpunk future. Right. Cyberpunk is a very, very genre. Right? right. I don't feel like cyberpunk. Cyberpunk doesn't feel real. I love it, but it doesn't feel real. It feels like a comic book to me. Yeah, I get you. And, and cyberpunk, when you say that, it also suggests a musical genre. Because <laughs> of the word punk. Well, yeah, but also it just, it it sounds like there's sort of that in the background in the sense of the people who might be drawn, and also even music as an attitude about life. You know, like... I agree. There's... Punk is both, right? Punk is both a, a, a musical genre and a, a sort of a, uh, a street-level DIY lifestyle. Yeah, if you... And I'm not looking at punk. I'm looking at the future of capitalism. I'm looking at capitalist realism. But I'm adding in augmented reality, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, robotics, um, universal basic income. Well, and I'll back up for a moment and say one thing just so you get where I'm coming from. When I was teaching at UCLA for 10 years, I did a lot of McLuhan. To open up the doors in their head about stuff, and and I would do an exercise where I would take a story, and I would do a phase shift with everybody to say, all right, how do I take this story through all these media, and say, story, what happens to a story if it becomes an opera, or it becomes a piece of music, or it becomes a piece of art, or it becomes a uh, a mural or it becomes this, or it becomes that, or the other thing. And the whole point of it was to get people to understand how a piece of art is not a singular thing. Uh It's an expression of a core emotion that lives in the heart of the person. And that the form of the art is simply a way of activating that core sense of belief or emotion. I agree. And core belief or emotion here, it's really a, a question. It's a driving set of questions about, let's say... 
for for the sake of ontological economy, we assume that capitalism maintains for the next 100 years, but also corporatism gets more and more powerful. Technology gets sufficiently advanced so that convergence starts to lead to a lot of questions. It starts to, it's harder now to predict the future than it's ever been before, and part of the reason is because the rate of technology accelerates, but also because different technologies are going to converge, right? And that will create ripple effects and convergent effects and emergent effects that are difficult to see from where we're standing. And so that's the question that started this whole ball rolling for me. Like, what sort of predictions can we make about the next 100 years? And in order to keep the questions as simple as possible, I'll assume capitalism survives, corporatism continues, uh, the gap between the rich and the poor, you know, it, it continues expanding, but at the same time, even for the baseline, even for people in Africa, right, the, the standard of living is slowly increasing. So what I see is a highly stratified society, uh, both economically and socioculturally, because augmented realities and online activities, social networks and, and various computer-driven platforms will create a world in which we we don't all live in the same world. Right? We'll literally be walking side by side seeing different things. Well augmented realities. There's uh I've done a lot of work with climate change people and I've involved in several groups now that are everybody's looking for pathways outside. So I have worked with different people who are some of them are you know, what you call corporatist people and I've worked in corporate, I've worked in alternative. But one of the issues with capitalism that came into very high relief in one of these groups comes to this question, which is that capitalism, that a lot of people re react to, is where monetary values become divorced from morality. Right. And that's where people react to capitalism. In other words, you, you get to, okay, I've got capitalism, which essentially is the investment of money to achieve gain. And I, I invest capital, and I you know, take certain steps with it to achieve gain, and then I, and the more I do this, it translates up into political power. Correct. And political power becomes oppressive to the point where it, it becomes decoupled from all morality. Yes. And it's willing to perceive gain to the point of negative social consequences. And we look at such things as, for example, um, the coal industry where the coal industry is willing to go ahead and perceive the mining and use and deployment of coal to the negative co consequence on the environment. Sure. Or you can look at social platforms like Facebook, which are willing to undermine the stability of our, of our society in the, in the pursuit of marketable data. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the conscious capitalism movement. Um, no. Well, there's a group that's called Conscious Capitalism, and there's a number of groups that play off the values of Conscious Capitalism, and some of it, some of it takes the immediate and obvious turn that products have to be made in a way that they are fully respectful of the environment, and they must be fully um, 
the full product and development chain all the way down to the end, then the product is discarded, that it has to be fully biodegradable, low impact, all this kind of thing. And uh, among other people I've met in that cycle is the CEO of a company called Patagonia, which makes clothing. And the CEO is deeply committed to this vision of conscious capitalism, where the, you know the, what the product is made out of is is uh, uh, at least theoretically it's made out of fibers that are raised in an ecologically responsible way, and that the fibers are all theoretically again biodegradable. That it will everything will return to the earth at the end of the cycle, and uh, the marketing product and everything. So <clears throat> there are people trying in their way to do some socially responsible things with capitalism, but it's a lot and there's more... Also, I mean, there's a certain level at which the, the corporatocracy must um, kowtow to social pressure in various ways. I and mean, we see this it's, it's often subtle, but sometimes not so subtle. Um, you know, the social trends toward diversity, inclusivity, um, the corporate structure needs to at least pay lip service to these things. And so in the corporate world, for instance, we see, you know, gender fluid pronouns becoming accepted and, and this is bowing to social pressure. It doesn't really affect the power structure, right? But it does affect the way corporations position themselves. Well, you know, it's, it's a trickier question just because the problem with capitalism as such, I mean, when you look at... Um, will always produce a power hierarchy. That's unavoidable. It, it does, but at, at some level it is a mechanism that, at its most rudimentary form, is transferable even at mi micro levels. In other words, that there are villages in India who micro-invest in stocks, penny stocks, through, you know, the one cell phone that the village owns. I mean, I've been exposed to that as well. Uh -huh. You know, in other words... The it is scalable, and there's no doubt that actually capitalism has resulted in this rising of all boats. Now, not all boats rise at equal rates. No, they don't. We end up with a Pareto distribution, and the 1% gets smaller and smaller and richer and richer. But... Even the even the ninety nine even people at the bottom of the ninety nine percent still see their standard of living slowly increasing. Yeah. So the, the 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 central question I wanted to come back to with you is that when you look at any kind of insurrectionary position or an anarchist position, is that when you say okay I want to get rid of that or I want to change this to that or the other thing, the problem ends up being always what do you replace it with? Absolutely. And if you don't you, have... Have you read Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher? No, no. It's a very short book. It's just like 120 pages. You can find it on Scribe and um, various places. Um, now, Fisher, he's dead now, um, but he was a he was a socialist. He was a Marxist, actually. Uh, and so you can imagine what his views of capitalism were. He wanted to remove the system, and yet he was trying to be realistic about the internalization of the power structures that capitalism has created and that we we have taken upon ourselves, you know, all the, and, and you can look at Foucault or Deleuze, and they've already hit all these notes. We have internalized the logic and mechanisms of capitalism 
to the degree where they actually seem quite natural. And in fact, one could argue they are natural. Well, you know, it's the issue of what do we replace it with that has a similar economic motor that where people go in terms of transferring wealth. I mean, that that really lies underneath it. And you can end up, which I've sort of ended up with, is that there is, the system is fundamentally, the human system is fundamentally corrupt at a, at a deep level, and that no matter what way you end up, even the poorest people who need to get out of poverty and suffering and whatever, and want a path out of poverty, um, often turn to capitalism in one way or another, because it becomes a method of how do I invest X to get Y? How do I pool my resources and turn them into something larger than what I have? Right. This logic has become internalized, and it's tied to... So what do you think the alternative is? Oh, well, we can we can brainstorm on alternatives. I think that, that now that we have a global network and uh, right around the corner, truly intelligent, artificial intelligence, We've now reached a state for the first time in history where it is possible to imagine uh, an automated wealth distribution systems which run aside from the human desire for power, the will for power. So we could... Now, of course, this imagines that the, that the 1% is going to be willing to hand over their, their power to AI. <laughs> so that's a big, big question. But technologically, it's possible to imagine an artificial intelligence or a set of artificial intelligences managing an equitable distribution of resources across the globe. Yeah, I mean... The thing that the, the democratic socialists or even the, even the mutualist anarchists can see around the corner. But, to pull it back to Fractopia, that's not what I'm projecting because there's a lot of big ifs there. And again, I want to keep my questions, my, my initial questions were, what is this tech going to do to us, right? How is it going to converge and how will our society change? And so I want to keep Occam's razor in my hand. I want to keep it, you know, ontologically economical. And so I assume, based on experience and based on the philosophy of Fisher and, and others, the reason Fisher calls his book Capitalist Realism is because uh, uh, all these points that you've been bringing up. We have internalized these structures, which are, if not natural, then certainly seem natural and have pervaded our, our whole belief system, our whole worldview, to the point where even a person in poverty sees capitalism as the way out, as the mechanism by which value will be attained. So, again, to keep to keep the ontology clean and to avoid going into, like, Marxist or anarchist daydreams, <laughs> I take today and I keep capitalism and I keep corporatism and I just advance the tech. And then I look at what that does to culture. And one of the things, one of the, one of the main, one of the biggest leaps I make, but I don't see any way around it, is that the automation of the workforce will eventually force us 
even here in America, where we'll be the last Western country to adopt universal basic income of some kind. And I believe that just the way the, the way that corporations have bowed to, first they bowed to the civil rights movement, and the women's lib movement, and, and you know corporations can roll with this. They can they can fold it in. And so, at a certain point, in order to avoid rebellion or collapse, those at the top will concede to what to them will be perceived as a welfare tax of some kind be distributed as a universal basic income across the board. And that shores up the bottom level so that as long as you're registered in the system, you have a baseline. You will, you will not live on the street. You will not die of starvation. And then you've got all these you guys to keep your to keep you interested. You've got Facebook and you've got artificial reality games and you've got you know, all the bread and circuses that will prevent revolt I don't think there's any way around it. I mean, it's, it's either Civil War or UBI at some point. UBI meaning what? Universal Basic Income. Yeah, I, I don't disagree that people think about that. Uh, are you familiar with Harari? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And, and I think the essential thing that Harari says, if you boil, you know, boil the fat off the chicken, is, and it's a scary prescription because I think it goes outside of what you're saying, really. I think he's saying that our technology is developing faster than the moral ability of our society to absorb it. And that that if you have technology like self-driving cars and, even more importantly now, self-driving trucks, which are being developed, right. um, that you have the ability to essentially eliminate uh, massive levels of jobs that fuel um, unskilled labor in the United States, for example. And and so when and this is just this is a practical reality. I, just FYI, the head of Waymo, um, um, John Kraftchik, who is the head of Honda, excuse me, Honda of Hyundai. When I was uh, doing senior work at Hyundai, he, and I used to do presentations to John and his senior staff, and you know major projects, and he le- he was basically fired at Hyundai for some performance reasons, and he was hired over to be the head of Waymo at Google, which is their whole effort to develop a self-driving car. Right. Uh, I don't have links into Titan over at Apple, and Apple is putting even more secret efforts. At Project Titan to develop what is, in a sense, the you know the iPhone with wheels, uh, which is going to come out sooner or later, and there's a lot of rumors coming out of that shop as well. But neither here nor there. The point is, is that well, it is there though because part of this is all linked to ubiquitous computing. Well, and, and the essential contradiction that that's coming is that capitalism is becoming even more dominant through the 21st century because it is producing the technology that will change everything. Right. And and there's no way to Fisher, stop it. Fisher saw no way out of it. Uh, he, he, you know, As a Marxist, he wanted to see a way out of it, but he was trying to be a realist, and he came to the same conclusion. As Deleuze and Foucault would say, we have internalized the logic of capitalism to the degree where its disciplinary measures are no longer even 
uh, the use of physical force. Yeah, but I mean, but realistically, Todd, I mean, if you look at all of the major vectors that are shaping, reshaping the 21st century, just to save ourselves from climate change, um, massive investments in technology by mega companies, just to deal with um, the transportation issue. Toyota, the company I've been doing a lot of work with, has named itself a mobility company because they are tacitly recognizing that they are not going to be selling cars to individuals within 20 years. Uh, they're going to be cars are going to become a device, and Uber is basically the herald of the, the end of the car as a possession. Right, Uber is a transitional stage. Exactly, and so what's going to happen is people are going to say, "Oh, I need a car. I'll call for someone to bring me one," and the car will show up, and you won't own it, and you won't have insurance, and you won't have any of that. You'll just say, "I need to go somewhere." And and so the, the the corporate model and the technology that fuel it that strip away a lot of machinery that we've had in our culture, the middle class American lifestyle that has been so costly in terms of environmental and other costs we've incurred, is really being chipped away by massive investments in new technology which are all the corporate life, and it's going to be even bigger than it ever was yeah. to fuel that very technology that we're speaking of that will, you know, it, it's like... Yes, and granted, the technology is getting cheaper, but let's face it, at some point, capitalists need to make their profit. Well, sure they do. But even more than profit, what they need more, like, and look at Apple as job one, they need power. And, and this is the thing. People confuse profit and power. The fundamental contradiction in the situation we find ourselves, and Harari says it better than anybody, is that to be free of the disaster facing us, we need new technology, and corporate capitalism is the agent of that freedom. Right, right. And another tenet of the uh, Fractopian universe is that corporations begin to usurp many of the roles once played by government. They already have. Yeah, because they're faster, and there's no way the law can keep up with, with the convergent development. And it may not have surprised you at the basic comic opera operation of the American government in the last two years, or the last ten. Sure, we've got Mussolini and fascism already. You know, to strip it down to its bare bones, Mussolini and fascism is when corporate power and government power uh, unite into a single structure, a single machine. But with Trump, what we have is the apprentice in the White House. <laughs> we have. Yeah, but I'm we... looking bigger than Trump. I'm, look, I'm really looking at something that begins back with uh, neoliberalism. It begins back in the Reagan-Thatcher era. But, you know, what we have now is a television show in which Trump goes out and and deals with his corporate audience, his 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 audience of misfits, but his ability to really affect change has been blunted by continual lawsuits every time he tries to make major changes. He ha he's done a lot of damage, but uh, it's been mitigated by a lot of factors. 
I, I don't disagree with that, but I try to look beyond Trump himself because, you know, insert Alex Jones' rant about the New World Order and uh, how those in control are, are much much more powerful and higher up and invisible than the political figures that we see on our TV. Yeah, exactly. The point I'm making is is that really I I agree with your fundamental orientation that we need to be building alternative models to how to run the society and we need to speak to the realities of what is going to happen to real people. And we need to want to build here is a view of the future which is no more utopian or dystopian than what we already have. It's really what we already have, just writ larger. Well, yeah, and as a, um, I mean, I'm not an anarchist, I'm a pragmatist in the sense that reality ends up being, and we, we have to look at, um, you've got millions of people, and a lot of people are being screwed you know, in so many different ways. I, I would have to interject here that I, I am an anarchist philosophically uh, and idealistically, but not pragmatically, because I've been down that route. I was an organizer for Occupy. Yeah. Uh, I've had all these discussions, and while it's possible to imagine the automated wealth distribution systems of the future, it is not, from where we stand, possible to imagine that transfer of power. Well, here, here's the issue. And this came up in one of the uh, the groups I'm working with, which and this came up also in the issue with the that Harari mentions, but also a number of people I've been dealing with are dealing with prag- pragmatically, which touches on the uh, universal guaranteed income. The problem with the guaranteed income is okay, fine if you take the person who's had a job driving long haul trucking. And the system now has self-driving trucks, and they don't need long-haul truckers anymore. And a lot of the guys who feed their family driving these long-haul trucks are now out of a job. And for the most part, they're just unskilled, redneck sort of guys. Right, and unlike the previous Industrial Revolution, uh, the new jobs that will be created are not the kind of thing you can easily train an unskilled laborer to take over. Well, yeah, exactly. And and not only that, they don't live in a in a culture that necessarily values education transformation. I'm going to build a new person, or you know, they're afraid of it. They're afraid of not being successful. Um, and the real challenge that is going to be created with the universal income is you're going to have a lot of people sitting around doing nothing, especially males. You don't have anything to answer that spiritual dimension in their lives of personal fulfillment. I mean, the one thing that keeps men uh, functioning... is why we get back to the augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, artificial personas online. You, you start to live in video games. You start to take out your aggression playing Halo. Well, yeah, that's one answer, but you know what the other answer that's proven out in our society is not that, Todd. It is drugs. <laughs> and what what you look at in our country over the last 20 years um, is a crisis that's very real, and I think it actually tells you what the real outcome would be, is things like opioids. Sure, 50% of the 
population is walking around medicated, either by a doctor or by themselves. Yeah, you know, the doctor doctors you know, started slipping, and, and, you know, people would come in and they were, you know, like totally wigged out. Men, like we, in the last, what, 20 years, we came to a period where white men started dying early, like in their 50s. Yeah, the suicide rate is climbing, and it, it's mostly among teenagers and, and white men. Right, because, and it's, it's analogous to the one that happens in Japan, because Japan has a very high honor-driven culture, and the South, the American South does as well, which traces back to the honor-driven culture from Ireland and Scotland, where a lot of the... They draw their identity from their labor. Well, that's exactly it. An honor-driven culture is one where, for example, in the South, that whole culture of having, um, you know, feuds and having, um, what do they call them, um, where they would call each other out with guns and have a, have a, uh, duel. a duel and shoot out there. You know, in other words, if the spiritual question of pride in work, pride in achievement is removed, and you give people just money, it's not a solution. Uh, and, and, ju and saying that you're going to give people an artificial life online, uh, which may or may not fuel violent fantasies or not. You know, at the end of the day, when we start thinking about why do we have such a prevalent gun culture and mass shootings, I think all of it is of a piece. Is that people snap. And their resentment and anger and alienation gets into the point where they go in and start shooting people. Agreed. But when we are given an, an, an augmented overlay on top of reality, the social networks, the video games, and imagine this projected on top of reality. Now you have augmented reality glasses so that you can walk around and literally be in a virtual reality all day long. Your, your true identity falls away and gets replaced by a virtual identity which operates in a virtual world. But in what way is that different than a narcotic? Oh, oh, it is. It is a narcotic, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, see, but in that sense, I, I think that at some point the false narcotic will be replaced by a real one. And and this is, this is the thing. I don't think it's a solution. Um... I'm remembering a line from THX 1138 where the public service announcement comes over the speaker and says, if you feel you are not properly medicated, please contact. No, we're, we're definitely moving into the territory that Aldous Huxley had stated in Brave New World, if you've read that sure. recently. What yeah, Orwell was afraid of Soviet socialism, um, but Huxley was looking at the future of materialist capitalism. Yeah, the scene in the opening scene of Brave New World, where the uh, the lower class babies were being conditioned on an electric floor yeah. to be stimulus response to be compliant to the need of the power structure, is still one of the most riveting and horrifying scenes in fiction. Absolutely. Actually, so, I recently reread Brave New World because I found that an important aspect of, of you know. Yeah, but I mean, it's important. Research, and again, it came to the conclusion that, you know, everybody's scared of 1984, but really they should be looking at Brave New World. Right, and that's my point. Brave New World is a much scarier dystopia 
and you know it's and everything in it has really been realized already we are beyond a slippery slope we are structurally committed to corporate capitalism to create the technology of the future that will save us from the nightmare we're in now that's not going away and we don't have a mechanism right now to address the moral question of what's going to happen when people are left bereft and unable to uh, find pride in their work. Agreed. And pulling all this together, the Fractopian vision, I am not proposing a solution. Um, what I am proposing is that the power structures that be will concede just enough. I mean, look at Look at the bank bailout of 2008-2011. Look at quantitative easing. You know, they will concede just enough, just enough, to prevent collapse or revolt. But other than that, the power structures that exist will continue existing for, I think, at least 100 years. They will be collapsing, they will be corrupt, yes. But they will continue existing. Making concessions as more and more of us become medicated and alienated from reality. So let me give you an example of something. I'm currently working on a book project which is about health care. Okay. And so I've gotten quite an education in all of this. And I'll just distill the essence of what the point I want to make is that the current health care system in the United States, which I'm sure you're pretty well aware of on a superficial, if nothing else, level is that we have a corporatized healthcare system, and we all know what that means. We have insurance, we have pharmaceuticals, we have hospitals, doctors, and finance that are a mutually reinforcing system that have basically sold the idea that this massive technology-driven system through medical research is in the best of interest of the of, of the patient. That, that this system itself is giving us better medical care through accelerated research, medical technology, that we are, you know, the wonders of modern healthcare. The current system is so driven by money that it has evolved to a point where if you cannot pay that people are simply excluded from the system. It really is now at a point where if you can't pay, you die. I mean, literally, unless you can get some kind of public assistance, but even that dries up. And there's Medicaid, but Medicaid has been cut or been compromised with so many different questions and caveats. And healthcare is a product to be sold and that basically, if you're not prepared to pay, then you don't deserve to live. Right. Coming full circle with you, what you said to begin with, is that the battle we're going to fight with capitalism is a moral battle. It is ultimately that capitalism is not going to go away because ultimately it is intrinsically tied in with the technology solutions that are going to be developed to extend life, to make future technologies that will deliver many benefits. I mean, you know, we 
we're so far down the technology road we can't get off of it. Um, especially with some areas like climate change. I mean, there's no way we can do anything with that unless we have more advanced technologies to focus. It just, there's got to be some way to mitigate these mega corporations and bring them in to their responsibility, even if we don't like them. And even if we realize that they're doing deeply immoral things, that's the battle we're all fighting at one level. Because I don't know that we're going to get rid of them. Agreed. Uh, and yet, I think they will be forced to make concessions, and they always have. Uh, and it's, it's the concessions they make are, are typically, you know, on, on the on a cultural level, not so much on the economic power level. Um, you know, and I, because this is also fiction and prognostication. I don't want to get too far into the weeds uh, about political specific. I just see that some concessions will have to be made and I think the universal basic income is one of those concessions. And I know that there are great arguments against it and I know that American culture has this pride thing and nanny state, welfare state, yeah, but when you're looking at 50% of all jobs being automated within the next 50 years, I don't see any other way around it. Well, one of the things that we're facing, and again, I think you're one of the people, few people I know who really gets these things, is that the very density of technology and the fact that technology has become so transformative and disruptive of the relationship of people with work, people with the society, is that it has created new fundamental ethical relationships. And we can't just let technology blow up like a bomb and destroy our culture. Because it will do that. I mean, that's what Harari says. That's, to me, the message of this whole book. Technology will keep evolving and evolving and evolving, and it will keep blowing up things in your culture to the point where it becomes unrecognizable. Sure. Now, you could say that on a cultural level, well, that's evolution, baby. I mean, the culture that we know didn't always exist. Yeah, but de facto, what happens when you do that is that only a small handful of people relatively, the upper, the extremely wealthy and the upper middle class and maybe some aspect of the middle class can live a favorable life and maybe a very large section of the population is going to live a life in pure poverty, illness, and death. If you look globally, you already see that. I mean, here in America, when I, you know, the, the last... The last five, six years have been really fucking hard. I actually had to beg for rent money uh, on social networks last year when I faced being evicted from the house I'm renting. I'm seeing the web development industry become automated and fall away. I'm seeing the economy, you know, they, they say the GDP is growing, but it's only growing at the top end. You know, down here at the bottom end. People don't have the money to start new businesses, and people who do start new businesses are doing it on a shoestring, and they're building a $99 template-driven website. You know, I'm, my job is already being automated out of existence, and I'm living hand-to-mouth. And I have been living hand-to-mouth since about 2012. It's literally scary. Literally scary. I, almost every month, don't know where the next month's rent is coming from. i got 30 days to fill that hole. And that is terrifying 
to a person who grew up in Generation X. <laughs> but, but, as an anarchist who's aware of, you know, global politics, I also know that there are people living in Sierra Leone <laughs> to whom my lifestyle looks fucking cush. Yeah, yeah, I got, I got. So there's a long way for us to fall. There's a long way we could fall yeah. and still be alive. And we don't want to think about that. We certainly don't want it to happen. But it's a fact. There's a lot you're saying that I think ties into where a lot of other people have, I might call, inchoate or unfocused anger, questions, rage. Sure. I do believe that one of the tasks for us and others that follow us is that we have to we have to model, demand, insist upon respect for the individual human person, for personhood, for people's rights to live a life that is fulfilling. I mean, that ultimately has to be there. I think that's more important than saying, let's fuck capitalism, because capitalism is going to be there whether you like it or not. What right. We, what we have to do is demand for respect for the human being, so at the end of the day, we don't let them automate to save a few bucks and then kick people out on the street. Here's something hopeful I can throw out there. Our notion of deriving your personal value from your work is really not that old. It's only a few centuries old, and compared to the tens of thousands of years we have been building civilizations and cultures and, and tribal groups, the idea of deriving your meaning from your day-to-day -day labor is only a thin sliver of history. Right. Maybe we'll push through it. Well, we'll do our best. <laughs> All right. All right, I'll let you go, man. You be good. You have a good one. I hope you enjoyed the talk as much as I did. Absolutely. Right back at you. Later on. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fractopia. I'm your host, Todd Foley, reminding you to comment, like, subscribe, and share, as feeding those important algorithms will help bring the show to a broader audience of futurists and fictioneers. If you're feeling especially warm and fuzzy, please feel free to show your support by dropping a one-time donation at thisisfractopia.com or joining my Patreon at patreon.com fractopia. Sources and links for further reading can be found in the show notes below.